Amen. Amen, amen. Well, it's fun just uh, seeing the parents stand up. Um, it takes me back 10 years ago to our very first parents weekend that we had as a church. Um, you know, we're 10 years in and we used to meet at the Hilton Hotel. So you may have driven by it. Yes, we met at the nicest hotel in the city. It was awesome. And um, uh, we had parents weekend. And so, you know, we're really trying to impress all these parents, okay? Because at that time, pretty much I was the oldest person at our church at like 26 years old outside of a few people. We didn't have a lot of parents, so this is like our big parents uh, Sunday. And so there we were. Now, we didn't do coffee at the time because we had kind of a tight budget, but we decided to pull all the stops and do some coffee, all right? So we got a big canister of Folgers, made it happen for them. On that Sunday, we said, hey, it's for the parents, guys. And so we were really feeling good. And then I had this great idea to ask a few of our young college guys to make us some breakfast tacos. Now, again, we had some budget restrictions, and so I said, hey, guys, listen, tortillas, eggs, and I love to do real bacon, but we're going to have to go with bacon bits. And so uh, I went to Sam's. I bought the stuff with this huge bag of bacon bits. So I dropped it off. They're all fired up to serve, you know. So they wake up early that Sunday morning. They're making a ton of tacos, you know. And they're making them, you know, and they're putting the bacon bits in, roll them up, foil, right? And so they show up, and we're there at the service, and it's like, you know, all the pre-service stuff. Hey, come on in. In fact, parents, we got coffee and tacos for you, and we're feeling like awesome, you know. They're really going to love this. And so, you know, I'm over there greeting people, and someone comes over to me and says, hey, Tyler, something's wrong with the tacos. And I was like, whoa, 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 what? You know, and I look over, and there's literally people taking bites and then, like, spitting them out, like, in the trash can. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what happened, you know? And so we go over there, open these up, and the, the eggs had turned pink uh, because if you don't know, bacon bits aren't really bacon, apparently. Um, there's some sort of concoction dyed to look like bacon, but it's actually just a bunch of food color. So these tacos turn kind of pink, and then the taste of bacon bits with eggs is just not a winner. Um, it's not real bacon. And so it was a complete disaster. Um, somehow people still encounter God in the midst of it. Um, and so I want you to know, we actually use better coffee, not a knock on Folgers, but it is what it is. And we decided to not do tacos ever again on Parents Weekend. So you are thankful for that. Um, my name's Tyler. I'm the lead pastor here at, at Antioch. And again, just if you're new, we, we love having you. Um, you know, today is, is, is Palm Sunday, and we look forward to Easter and celebrating that moment. But um, we wanted to really highlight today and in order to do that properly, I wanted to take us a bit into the context of what Jesus wrote into. What was he writing into on that day 2,000 years ago? Um, and so just to paint the picture for us, remember, he was writing into an area that was ruled by the Romans, right? The Roman Empire was this great civilization throughout history, and Caesar Augustus actually was sitting on the throne when Jesus was born. So the world that, 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 that Jesus literally was born into was ruled by the Roman Empire. And when Caesar Augustus came to power, he actually came to power at a time of civil war and civil unrest within Rome. So when he came and he restored peace through a bunch of military actions and different things, people started really um, uh, celebrating him as a savior. In fact, they would, they would associate Caesar Augustus with savior. And the people thought, hey, he's the one who brought real peace to Rome. And wherever he went, you know, if he showed up to a city or a venue, whether it was songs or people speaking about him or writing about him, they would use words like freedom and justice and peace and salvation. 
were actually attached to Caesar. So much so that actually where he went and the great deeds of Augustus Caesar were shared, they would, uh, they would use this phrase, euangelion, which in Latin translated is good news or gospel. They were sharing about the gospel of Caesar Augustus. This guy has done great things for our empire. And what that turned into from him just being a man who sees power to now all of a sudden the people started realizing there's a deification going on. We actually see this man as a God because of what he's done. He's done what no one else has been able to do. And so he relished in that opportunity and really became to the Roman Empire like a God. Which means that when the idea of Pax Romana was spread throughout the different regions, including Judea and Samaria and Galilee, these places where Jesus stepped into, these, peace, these places, peace was brought by Rome, but it was brought by instilling fear, right? It was peace through war. It was peace through conquering the people. Many historians, as they write about Rome and the empire, the several hundred years reign, when they write about it, they say, look, um, the reality was about 97% of the people lived on the verge of poverty or in poverty. 3% enjoyed all the luxuries of life that you will look at in palaces and all the different spas they got to enjoy and the different things. But the majority of the people, didn't matter who you were, you actually lived in poverty if you weren't enslaved in some way, shape, or form. Which means the Roman Empire, strong as it was, it only had, it had an upper class and everybody else. There wasn't a middle class. It was everybody else is just trying to eke by. Which is why in Israel, at the time of Jesus, when, he, when Jesus stepped in, there was a ruler named Herod, right? Herod, and so he was put in place by the Romans to subdue the Jews. So he did that through military means. He did that by building lots of buildings, creating different military barracks, and doing things so that the Jews would actually be submitted to him and to the rule of Rome. Different things they did is they heavily taxed the people in that region. They had heavy taxes on them. And, and along with that, they actually made the priests do sacrifices in the temple on behalf of Caesar and of Rome. They were trying to institute these pagan practices within it because they knew if we can get to the temple, we can get to the Jews. So here you have people living in Galilee, Samaria, Judea, that are in poverty, that are oppressed. And, you know, because they were Jews, not only were they having to pay these heavy taxes to the Romans, which left them with very little, then part of their faith, then they also tithe. They also gave sacrifices to the temple, which is why many of them lived in a constant state of hunger and poverty and debt. That's why when you read the Gospels, the majority of the time what Jesus is addressing is those very things. He's addressing the needs of the people. He's addressing their own reality, which was, uh, we need a savior and it ain't Caesar. We need someone to help us. We feel hopeless. You know, Jesus, when he came into this earth, the Jews knew what it was like to live underneath an oppressive regime. They knew what that was like. Babylon, Assyria, Persia, the Greeks, and now the Romans. This is what he stepped into, and this is why people are so hungry for justice and for reality and for freedom. So I want to paint that picture for you because as we read Matthew 21, and we talk about Palm Sunday, you have to understand this is where they were living. They were not living in like times we live in right now necessarily, right? All of you actually got here today, which means you have, you have enough to put clothes on 
and uh, feed your belly with some food, or at least you just came for our coffee, and maybe that feeds you for the day, I don't know. But you came here, and you're here. You're not in the same place they are, but to understand fully what Jesus did in that moment, we have to get into that mindset. So let's read Matthew 21, 1 through 10, about Jesus entering into the city. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? Now, just for context, this kind of kicks off what we categorize as Holy Week, right? Jesus' triumphal entry into the city and then the events that unfold in the next few days leading up to Thursday where he has this meal with his disciples and then he is falsely accused and arrested and put before trial after trial in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in front of Pilate and in front of Herod and then back to Pilate and eventually convicted of a crime he did not commit. And then he is sent to the cross to die an excruciating death. All of this is a week full of intensity. And this is how he comes in to the city. But I didn't describe to you how the people were feeling in the day they lived in. I would argue that although maybe economically it doesn't look necessarily the same for all of us, there is a reality that we can connect to. Because you see, it wasn't just the people lining the streets as Jesus rode in on this young colt that needed freedom, that needed hope. Just look around you and see the brokenness that exists in the people's lives that you love. Look at marriages, what biblical marriage is, and how modern marriage in America compares. Just look around you at the cycles of abuse, neglect, and addiction that continue to devastate families in our country. Just look around you and see the confusion, the depression, the self-hatred, the insecurity that exists in teenagers and college students across the country. Look at the financial state that people live in, week-to-week survival, debts that seem impossible to ever pay off. Just look around you and see the sexual morality, the self-idolatry, the pride, and the greed that's affected every state and every town across our land. Things can seem bleak if you look at them long enough. Things can feel dark because darkness exists, but... We're not without hope. We are not without hope, nor were they. We're not without hope because we're not beyond changing. Because there is nobody, there is no town, there is no nation, I believe, that is beyond the arm's reach of Jesus. All you've got to be is within arm's length of Jesus. As we see in the Gospels, 
people just wanted to get close to him. They knew if I can just get close enough to touch him, <laughs> I'm going to get healed. If I can just get close enough to hear him share, he's going to change my heart. If I can just get close enough just to see him do a miracle or to hear him talk, uh, maybe something can happen. Maybe something can change. That's why he had thousands of people following him, right? There, there was no marketing campaign for Jesus, right? I mean, there, there were no media ad buys for him. It's just his life. People were attracted to the stories they heard, and they heard friends share, hey, when you get close, there's nothing like it. I can't describe him to you, but man, he is so different, which is why when it says there in Matthew 21, he came in the city and the city was stirred, saying, who is this? The city was stirred. I believe it was Jews and Gentiles stirred. I believe it's different ethnicities were stirred. They were gathering people who didn't know much about Jesus, people who knew a lot. They were stirred, though, saying, who is this? Who is this man? So they were asking that because they'd never seen such a man. They'd never heard of someone riding in with the streets lined, the people cheering and chanting for a man with no title, with no position, no horse, no sword. It was different. This is who Jesus was. He was a king. But unlike any other king, Unlike any other king that had gone before him and would come after him. So what kind of king is he, right? What kind of king is this King Jesus? I want to share with you kind of four things that describe him and the kind of king that he is that we see from this passage. What I want you to first know is he's a prophetic king. He's a prophetic king. You know, in John chapter 4, Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman, if you remember, at the well and he came to her, and he told her about her five previous husbands and her current boyfriend. She was a bit taken back by that. How'd you know that? I mean, that's pretty detailed, you know, to like know the guy with you now is just your boyfriend. It's like, whoa. So now she gets in a little dialogue with him in John 4, and she's like, who are you? How do you know this stuff? And eventually shares with her. And what happens to this woman? Because Jesus, because him knowing that about her is a prophetic word. It's something that the Lord had told her, had told him about her. So then he spoke into this place in her heart, and her heart was burning inside. She then ran to the village with other Samaritans were, which, by the way, were people the Jews were not supposed to hang out with, right? It was like, they live over there. You stay over here on your side. They weren't supposed to interact. But he did. She went to the village. They brought back a group of people and said he stayed with them for a couple of days, and they were saying, this is the Savior of the world. Isn't that interesting? The Samaritans got it before most of his disciples got it. They're living with them, hanging out with them, eating fish with them. They don't get it. And these people are like, oh, we get it. Don't you love those stories when someone's lived a life completely ignorant of who Jesus is? He comes in their world, and it's like, they rip the veil off, take the blinders off, shed the backpack of all their baggage, and say, I'm running after him. I mean, this lady was probably hustling to that town, coming back and saying, come on. They're like, what got into her? And they come back, and they're like, this is Jesus. And remember, nobody's out of arm's length from Jesus. But, you know, he's a prophetic king, not only because he actually said, hey, this was going to happen. You're going to go untie this donkey, and you're going to bring this donkey here. And he knew that the person would be able to release it. He knew that. But, you know, Paul speaks about 
the prophetic in 1 Corinthians. Verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. He goes on in verse 3, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Now, guys, i got to be honest with you. About 13 years ago, or 14 years ago, I started dating my wife, Ashley, at the time. Uh, we, we, we were dating, and I went to her church in Waco, at Antioch Community Church in Waco. And I showed up on a Sunday, and I was a bit weirded out, I have to be honest. I grew up where in church you are not allowed to raise your hands. There was something wrong with you. I grew up in a church that if we clapped, it was only around Christmas time to like one of those certain songs, you know, and we all clapped off beat too. That's just the way we rolled. And you couldn't, you couldn't get it, you know. Um, so I rolled in and I'm like, wow, this is kind of different. But I couldn't describe it. It was a bit weirded out, but I was drawn. You know the feeling? You're like, I'm not used to this, but I like it, but I don't want to admit that I like it. Because you're, you're not, you're confused. You know, my experience says this is strange, but my heart's saying this is good. That's really what it was. So I'm there, and this guy, Clark Hammond, I still remember Clark, comes up to me, and he says, hey, man, uh, can I pray for you? Now, being the kind of guy I was and the church background I had, I was like, sure. And I'm thinking he's going to pray for me later on, like, wherever that's going to be. Like, at his home one day, he'll, like, pray for me, which we all know we never really do. We just like to say it because it's culturally good to say that, right? I'll pray for you. You didn't pray for them. You just said that. That's, that's why, I mean, that's really what I lived in, if you want me to be honest. And so I said, sure. And then he's like, okay. And then, like, closed his eyes, like, oh, he's going to do it, like, right now. <laughs> like, right now, right now. And I was thinking, okay. I'm like, wow. You know, he's like, hey, I just see this picture God's given me for you. And it's this fire hydrant, and all this water's blasting at you, and you're almost getting knocked over. But God wants you to know all that water is him coming at you. And you're feeling overwhelmed, but it's good. It's okay. And I was like, because just a few days prior to that, I was feeling so overwhelmed about what God was speaking to me and showing me. And I couldn't handle it. I was just feeling overwhelmed, like uh, just learning everything for the first time again. And he spoke in that place. And I was like, oh, okay. I never had that before. That was a prophetic word. That was him hearing something from God on my behalf to what? To strengthen, encourage, and comfort. You know, that's what the prophetic is. That's why this woman got her heart changed, ran into a village and said, you guys got to come hear this guy. She wasn't put off by it. She was changed by it. Jesus is a prophetic king. He's still speaking in those ways today. He wants to speak to you. He's not only a prophetic king, he's a humble king. He's a humble king. You know, in this passage in Matthew 21, with him writing in, he's actually quoting Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in Matthew 21, it labeled the donkey as what? The beast of burden. I mean, that's not encouraging, Right? I mean, could you imagine if someone gave you that name? It's like, hey, John, the beast of burden. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know. Wouldn't it be the adventurer, the conqueror? But no, Jesus chose to rode in on a beast of burden, which means he rode in on an animal that was seen and really used for just its hard labor. It wasn't glorious. Now, he could have ridden on a pig, I guess, but those are hard to ride on. I mean, I don't, maybe pigs are the lowest, you know, but, like, I'm talking he went low. So Jesus comes in, you know, he wasn't riding in on a war horse, right? Like he wasn't, 
He wasn't riding in on a great chariot, was surrounded by a bunch of people. It was just him. He's not dressed in a kingly uniform, right? Or or, or, or in the normal military garb. But I would like to look at, I see that he was wearing the belt of truth. He was wearing the breastplate of righteousness. He's carrying the shield of faith. Wears the helmet of salvation. He wields the sword of the spirit. And if I'm lining those streets with those people, what I'm expecting is this one to come and save us finally from the Romans. This one is going to finally come and topple this regime and make all things right. And you got to imagine, if we're honest, if you're down the line of this big line of people waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, you got to imagine you're down here. You're like, that's him. It's like, is that a donkey? It's like, no, bro, that's not a donkey. No, 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 no. This is just, just wait. It's far off. You know, it is. It's a mini donkey. It's a, (laughs) you know, you can sense a little discouragement probably coming like, Hosanna's like, wait a second. I thought he was supposed to be seven four, and now he's, he's normal size, and he's on a miniature donkey. You know, I was like, what is happening here? you got to imagine the expectations that people had for this kind of king were unmet, right? Have you ever had expectations unmet by God? You should be saying yes, because if you're saying no, you're lying. I know that, right? We all have had expectations about something that God was going to do or something he was going to be in a moment, right? We have that. Oh, God, I thought I was supposed to marry this person, get this job, go to this school, get accepted here, do this, be part of that. We all had that, make this team or to, or to work this relationship out or, or, to have, or to have five kids and we had three. I don't know what it is. We all have missed expectations that we then connect back to God. And here's what I'm going to say. God is good. And you can trust him. Even if what you see off in the distance looks a little funny and looks a little different than what you thought. But guys, you can trust him because you know why? Because Jesus wrote in. I don't think anyone else scripted that. He came in and people were like, what kind of king is this? Kings don't do that. But he rides in, humble. What he was trying to show them was, what you're expecting is me to come in with my big army. I'm telling you, that's not how we're going to change the world. That's how you've seen it be changed from time to time, regime to dream, conquer to conquer. This is different. This has to be different. You have to know that I am a unique king, that no one will ever come after me in the same way who have come before me. This is different. I'm going to make it so evident to you. I'm going to come in so humble to you to let you know the way we're going to topple everything, the way we're going to change everything is through my humility. He was prepared for battle, but it looked really different than the people expected. And the people were drawn to it. They didn't understand it, but they were drawn. Were drawn and attracted to humility. He was a humble king, and then he was also a servant king. A servant king. You know, when he was preparing the Passover meal, just a few days' time from now, um, he decided to demonstrate one of the most important virtues that he ever taught all of his disciples in the washing of their feet. So we'll pick it up in John chapter 13, verse 12 through 17. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed to his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and also ought to wash, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. What is he saying? He's saying, guess what, guys? Um, I just washed your feet. Now, if we don't remember here, foot washing was normal because they didn't have all the cool swanky shoes we got, okay? They're wearing, like, sandals or they're going barefoot. They didn't have asphalt and concrete. They had dirt and rocky roads that were filled with all of your dogs and cows' stuff, right? So you're walking to the streets. It would be very normal for you to walk in dung four to six times every day, just and that's just part of life, man. But you knew before you went to mama's house, you better get those feet washed. And so you walk in, and there's usually a servant there or a slave there or someone, and they would then wash your feet. So for Jesus to do that was just ridiculous. It was mind-blowing. It was, wait a second, you're our leader? Wait a second, you're our Messiah? Wait a second, everything you've taught us and shown us, you're going to wash our feet? They even refused a little bit, right? Until he put them in their place and said, no, if I don't wash your feet, you've got no part with me. They're like, okay, wash me all, right? Just dunk me. Like, put me in the dunking booth. No, he washed your feet. Now, think about it, guys. At this time, the stinkiest, smelliest part of the body is your feet. It doesn't get any dirtier than that. You can't get any lower than that either. He's a servant king, guys, which means as a leader, he went lower than his people were willing to go. I'm telling you, this is the model for leadership in our day and age. Presidents and CEOs and generals in the military and, and leaders and, of different organizations and pastors and fathers should be the ones that are washing the feet. They should be the ones saying, no, 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 I'm going to wash your feet. It shouldn't be, hey, uh, stinky feet over here. Thank you. But that's how a lot of leaders act, don't they? They act like most of the world has been taught to act, which is, if you're the leader, you are now privileged and entitled for everybody else to serve you. Jesus said, by the way, there's no entitlement in the kingdom. If you're entitled, you're going to have a real surprise coming because you got to get low and you got to serve people in front of you. This is beneath him as a king, they thought, but this is the way of the kingdom. This is the kind of king we have, a servant king. And lastly, he was a victorious king. Victorious king. And this is the good part. See, when the palm branches, when they're waving those, you know, palm branches at that time, they really symbolize victory, triumph, peace, eternal life. Many times for conquering armies, they would wave palm branches, depending on the different cultures, to signify, hey, you guys won, way to go. You did it. Jesus rides into this crowd saying, hey, we know you're coming. Victory is at hand. They were saying, Hosanna, 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 which the simple definition is save, we pray. Save, we pray. So the people were really shouting, oh, save now. Please save us. Oh, save us now. This is what we've been waiting for. He's coming. Finally, we can be rid of the cyclical poverty and the oppression and the destitution and the generation, the generation, the generation that keeps having to hear the same old story of being beaten and enslaved and discouraged and having just barely enough to eke by. Oh, God, when will you restore us? This is the cry the people's heart. So on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus riding into town, even though we know in a few days it's going to be some of the darkest hours in world history. 
the cross that Jesus would soon bear, the suffering, the painful crucifixion, the weight of mankind's sin upon him, even with all that going on, Jesus still submitted to the will of the Father, and he fulfilled the mission of God, which is to bring about salvation, not just for Jews, but for Greeks also, which means for everybody. You see, he could be a king for all nations, for all peoples, for all races. There is no other king in history that could do that. He was it. He was able to be a king for everybody, everywhere, if you would yet call upon his name. He was about to embody a moment, which is what we celebrate Easter weekend, the death and resurrection of Christ. And this weekend is where victory for all mankind is obtained. That's what we celebrate it, right? It ain't about the bunny. It ain't about the candy. Candy's nice. Bunnies are cute. That's not what Easter is. Easter is about this moment in time after thousands of years of human history, God literally saying in this moment, in this hour, when things couldn't look any worse, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring my son. He's going to bring about victory. It's going to look very different than you thought. It's going to look very strange. But I'm telling you, this is the way. It's very strange for someone to say, the way we're going to win is by the king dying. Right? Usually in military battles, when the king's dead or is captured, that's it. The army scatters and they surrender. But isn't that interesting? The victory moment is actually when our king died. When he died, it was like, oh, that's part one. Part two is going to be raised from the dead in a few days. But him dying is actually what allowed for the breakthrough to come. Him dying actually meant all of our sin came upon him, which means all of us who are enslaved to darkness just got a ticket to freedom and light. And then on Sunday, he proved it. That's what Sunday is. That's how we gather on Sundays, just so you know if you ever wondered. We gather because that's the day we celebrate him. That's the way our country started out. You know, the work week. Sundays is the day we rest. Sundays is the day we celebrate him. Even here we go, several hundred years into our culture and society, we still leave Sundays for this. It's actually woven into our calendar every seven days. We're supposed to celebrate the resurrected Christ. We're supposed to celebrate the freedom, the victory he purchased. But we forget that a lot of times. Sundays aren't about football. Not about mowing your grass. That's good too. Not about your naps. Those are all fun. <laughs> Sundays weren't made for that. They are made to celebrate him. That's what they're made for. I want us to be pulled in back to that moment here today. So as we close, I want us to stand and invite the band out. You know, so these people, right, when Jesus rode in, says they were stirred in the city. And they said, who is this? Who is this? Who is this Jesus? You know, when people ask that of you, what do you tell them? What do you tell them when someone says, hey, who is Jesus? Do you have an answer for them? I hope you can just say, he's the greatest king you've ever known. He's a king. He's a, he's a prophetic king, which means he knows what's going on inside your heart, even though you don't know it. He's a humble king, meaning hey, he's here to serve you and to love you, and he comes in without an ounce of pride. He doesn't lord things over you. He is lord, but yet he comes to serve you. You can tell a man, he... He, he's, he's such a servant, he'll come and wash your dirty feet and your heart. <laughs> Who is this Jesus? He's victorious. He's got a track record. He always wins. 
He's never lost. There was one time in history when most people in the world thought he lost. It was Friday and Saturday. But then we were all wrong. Because <laughs> on Sunday, he said, no, 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 I never lost. This is part of the winning. Jesus is alive. He's riding in. He's giving us hope. So I don't know where you're at today, but I want you to know there's hope for you. There's hope. Do not look at the things of this world. Be discouraged. Things are bad, but things are good. There's darkness and there's light. And last I checked, just takes a little bit of light to move away the darkness. It takes a lot of darkness to try to take the light, but all it takes is one little light. That's the way God designed it. In his creation, he designed it to say, church, just one light is enough. Sometimes we get lost in, well, there's so much darkness around us. The Romans are gathering. We're oppressive. We're out of money. We're, we feel so confused. No, 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 no. Jesus said, just look at me as I ride in to victory. Get your eyes focused back on him. As we close today, I'm just going to read a passage from Isaiah 61. It was written 700 years before this day Jesus rode into town. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The day may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. You see, Jesus is more interested in heart change than regime change. This is why we celebrate Jesus. Because he knew a regime could never change the heart. That's the same for us today. The regime won't change your heart. He can. So if we'll put our eyes on him again. And remember Isaiah 61. That is who he is. He comes to set people free. He comes to come to the depressed and put gladness and joy on their hearts. He comes to take off the bondages we've had and to take upon himself and move you forward in life. He comes to say, bring it before me and I'll restore your hope. This is Jesus. So here's Oregon in. We're just gonna worship him. We're gonna worship him. And as you do, I want you to be asking the question, Lord, is there any place where I've given up hope? Is there any place maybe there's been a misplaced expectation on God for something to happen and you've given up on him? And you've missed just looking at him, the king. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, we're meant to follow in his footsteps. We're meant to look upon him as our leader, as the one who restores our hope. So wherever you're at, we want to leave with this place, this reminder of this is who Jesus is. He's our king. He's our rightful king. He will not be defeated. If we will stay connected with him, we will also be conquerors along with him. So Lord, we just thank you for everything you've done for us. We thank you that we get to celebrate you. We thank you we get to say Hosanna. We get to say Emmanuel. We get to say, yes, you love us. You've died for us. You've risen from the grave. You are bringing victory to our hearts. 
Victory to our families. Victory to our country. Victory to our landlord. We pray, would you come? Do a heart change, not just on us in this room, but a heart change amongst our people. A heart change amongst our state. A heart change amongst our country, Lord. Change us as a people to turn back to you, God. To lift our eyes, to lift our hearts, say there's only one hope. There's only one rescue plan, and it's you. You're it. You're the king. So, Lord, we fix our eyes on you, the king, and celebrate and worship you this morning. In Jesus' name.